but, retorted Amber Young, compared to our other findings like Level 5, the hedgehog concept, and First 2, technology feels like a much smaller issue. I agree with Brian. Technology is important, but as a subset of discipline, or perhaps the next concept, the flywheel. We argued back and forth, back and forth, throughout the summer. Then Chris Jones, in her typically quiet and thoughtful way, posed a key question. Why? Why did the good-to-great companies maintain such a balanced perspective on technology when most companies become reactionary, lurching and running about like Chicken Little, as we're seeing with the Internet? Why indeed? Chris's question led us to an essential difference between great and good, a difference that ultimately tipped the balance in favor of including this chapter. If you had the opportunity to sit down and read all 2,000-plus pages of transcripts from the Good to Great interviews, you'd be struck by the utter absence of talk about competitive strategy. Yes, they did talk about strategy, and they did talk about performance, and they did talk about becoming the best, and they even talked about winning. But they never talked in reactionary terms and never defined their strategies principally in response to what others were doing. They talked in terms of what they were trying to create and how they were trying to improve relative to an absolute standard of excellence. Those who built the good-to-great companies weren't motivated by fear. They weren't motivated by fear of what they didn't understand. They weren't driven by fear of looking like a chump. They weren't driven by fear of watching others hit it big while they don't. They weren't driven by fear of being hammered by the competition. No, those who turn good into great are motivated by a deep creative urge and an inner compulsion for sheer unadulterated excellence for its own sake. Those who build and perpetuate mediocrity, in contrast, are motivated more by the fear of being left behind. Never was there a better example of this difference than during the technology bubble of the late 1990s, which happened to take place right smack in the middle of the research on good to great. It served as an almost perfect stage to watch the difference between great and good play itself out, as the great ones responded like Walgreens, with calm, objective equanimity and quiet, deliberate steps forward. Disciplined people engaged in disciplined thought and taking disciplined action while the mediocre ones lurched about in fearful, frantic reaction. The big point of this chapter is not about technology. No technology, no matter how amazing, not computers, not telecommunications, not robotics, not the Internet, can by itself ignite a shift from good to great. No technology can make you level five. No technology can turn the wrong people into the right people or give you the discipline to get the wrong people off the bus and only the right people on the bus. No technology can instill the discipline to confront the brutal facts of reality, nor can it instill unwavering faith. No technology can supplant the need for deep understanding of the three circles and the translation of that understanding into a simple hedgehog concept. No technology can create a culture of discipline. No technology can instill the simple inner belief that leaving unrealized potential on the table, letting something remain good when it can become great, is a secular sin. Those that stay true to these fundamentals and maintain their balance, 
even in times of great change and disruption, will accumulate the momentum that creates breakthrough momentum. Those that do not, those who fall into reactionary lurching about, will spiral downward or remain mediocre. This is the big-picture difference between great and good, the gestalt of the whole study captured in the metaphor of the flywheel versus the doom loop. And it is to that overarching contrast that we now turn. Chapter 8. The Flywheel and the Doom Loop Picture a huge, heavy flywheel, a massive metal disc mounted horizontally on an axle about 30 feet in diameter, two feet thick, and weighing about 5,000 pounds. Now imagine that your task is to get the flywheel rotating on the axle as fast and long as possible. Pushing with great effort, you get the flywheel to inch forward, moving almost imperceptibly at first. You keep pushing, and after two or three hours of persistent effort, you get the flywheel to complete one entire turn. But you don't stop. You keep pushing, and the flywheel begins to move a bit faster, and with continued effort, you move it around a second rotation. You keep pushing in an intelligent, consistent direction. Three turns, four, five, six, the flywheel builds up speed, seven, eight, you keep pushing, nine, ten, it builds momentum, eleven, twelve, moving faster and faster with each turn, twenty, thirty, fifty, a hundred. Then, at some point, breakthrough. The momentum of the thing kicks in your favor, hurling the flywheel forward, turn after turn, whoosh, its own heavy weight working for you. You're pushing no harder than during the first rotation, but the flywheel goes faster and faster and faster still. Each turn of the flywheel builds upon the work done earlier, compounding your investment of effort a thousand times faster, then ten thousand, then a hundred thousand. The huge, heavy disc flies forward with almost unstoppable momentum. Now suppose someone came along and asked, so what was the one big push that made it go so fast? That's a stupid question. You wouldn't be able to answer it. Was it the first push? The second? The fifth? The hundredth? No! It was all of them, added together in an overall accumulation of effort applied in a consistent direction. Some pushes may have been bigger than others, but any single heave, no matter how large, reflects a small fraction of the entire cumulative effect upon the flywheel. The flywheel image captures the overall feel of what it was like inside the companies as they went from good to great. No matter how dramatic the end result, the good to great transformations never happened in one fell swoop. There was no single defining action, no grand program, no one killer innovation, no solitary lucky break, no wrenching revolution. Good to great comes about by a cumulative process, step by step, action by action, decision by decision, turn by turn of the flywheel, and it all adds up to sustained and spectacular results. Yet to read media accounts of the companies, you might draw an entirely different conclusion. All too often, 
the media does not cover a company until the flywheel is already turning at a thousand rotations per minute. This entirely skews our perception of how such transformations happen, making it seem as if they jumped right to breakthrough as some sort of overnight metamorphosis. For example, on August 27, 1984, Forbes published an article on Circuit City. It was the first national-level profile ever published on the company. And it wasn't even that big of an article, just two pages, and it questioned whether Circuit City's recent growth could continue. Still, there it was, the first public acknowledgement that Circuit City had broken through. The journalist had just identified a hot new company, almost like an overnight success story. There's just one problem. This overnight success story had been more than a decade in the making. Alan Wurzel had inherited CEO responsibility from his father in 1973. Now keep in mind that Forbes article came out in 1984. In 1974, Wurzel and his team began to experiment with a warehouse style of retailing. Large inventories of name brands, discount pricing, and immediate delivery, and it built a prototype. In 1976, the company began to experiment with selling consumer electronics in the warehouse format. And in 1977, it transformed the concept into the first-ever Circuit City store. So now we're four years into this thing, and we only now, through experimentation, have the Circuit City concept. That concept met with success. And the company began systematically converting its stereo stores into Circuit City stores. Five years later, in 1982... With nine years of accumulated turns on the flywheel, Wurzel and his team committed fully to the concept of the Circuit City Superstore and threw all resources into that concept. Over the next five years, as it shifted entirely to the concept, Circuit City generated the highest total return to shareholders of any company on the New York Stock Exchange. From 1982 to 1999, Circuit City generated cumulative stock returns 22 times better than the market, handily beating Intel, Walmart, GE, HP, and Coke. It's not a surprise, then, that Circuit City found itself a prime subject for media attention. Whereas we found no articles of any significance in the decade leading up to the transition, we found 97 articles worth examining in the decade after the transition. 22 of them significant pieces. It's as if the company hadn't even existed prior to that, despite having traded on a major stock exchange since 1968, and despite the remarkable progress made by Wurzel and his team in the decade leading up to the breakthrough point. These folks had been pushing on the flywheel for a long time. The Circuit City experiment reflects a common pattern. In case after case in our study, we found fewer articles in the decade leading up to the point of transition than in the decade after by an average factor of nearly three times. Put another way, basically everybody ignored these companies till they broke through. For example, Ken Iverson and Sam Siegel began turning the Nucor flywheel in 1965. For 10 years, no one paid any attention, certainly not the financial press or the other steel companies. If you'd asked executives at Bethlehem Steel or U.S. Steel about the new core threat in 1970, they probably would have laughed if they even recognized the company name at all, which is highly doubtful. By 1975, the year of its upward inflection point, Nucor had already built its third mini-mill, 
long established its unique culture of productivity and was well on its way to becoming the most profitable steel company in America. Yet the first major article in Business Week did not appear until 1978. Now keep in mind, they began turning the flywheel in 1965. So it's 13 years after they started the transition. Its first major article in Fortune didn't come out until 16 years out. From 1965 through 1975, we found only 11 articles on Nucor, none of them significant. These were like little one-paragraph blurbs buried in the back of the Wall Street Journal. But then from 1976 through 1995, once the stock chart shot up and they were on their climb, gone from good to great, we collected 96 articles on Nucor, 40 of them being major profiles or nationally prominent features. Now, if I'm in your shoes, I'd be thinking, so what? We should expect that. Of course these companies would get more coverage after they became wildly successful. What's so important about that? Here's what's important. And it is, in my opinion, one of the most important points to come out of our five years of research. We've allowed the way transitions look from the outside to drive our perception of what they must feel like to those going through them on the inside. From the outside, they look like dramatic, almost revolutionary breakthroughs. But from the inside, they feel completely different, more like an organic development process. Let me explain it this way. I'd like you to picture an egg just sitting there, just a white egg. Now, no one pays it much attention until one day the egg cracks open and out jumps a chicken. All the major magazines and newspapers jump on the event writing feature stories. The transformation of egg to chicken. The remarkable revolution of egg. Stunning turnaround at egg. Interview with CEO who transformed egg. And so on and so forth. You can just picture it. As if the egg had undergone some overnight metamorphosis, radically altering itself into a chicken. But let me ask you, what does it look like from the chicken's point of view? It's a completely different story. While the world went about its business ignoring this dormant-looking egg, the chicken was evolving, growing, developing, incubating. From the chicken's point of view, cracking the egg is simply one more step in a long chain of steps leading up to that moment. A big step, to be sure, but hardly the radical, single-step transformation it looks like to those watching from outside the egg. Okay, you might be rolling your eyes a bit with this analogy, and it is a bit silly, but I'm using it to highlight a very important finding from our research. See, we kept thinking that we'd find the one big thing, the miracle moment that defined breakthrough. We even pushed for it in our interviews. But the good-to-great executives simply could not pinpoint a single key event or moment that exemplified the transition. Instead, they chafed against the whole idea of allocating points and prioritizing factors. In every good to great company, at least one of the interviewees gave an unprompted admonishment saying something like, look, you can't dissect this thing into a nice series of little boxes and factors, or identify the moment of aha, or the one big thing. It was a whole bunch of interlocking pieces that built one upon another. Even in the most dramatic case in our study, Kimberly Clark selling the mills, the executives described an organic cumulative process. 
Darwin did not change the direction of the company overnight, said one Kimberly Clark executive. He evolved it over time. The transition wasn't like night and day, said another. It was gradual, and I don't think it was entirely clear to everybody until a few years into it. Of course, and we can't deny this, selling the mills was a single gigantic push on the flywheel. But here is the key point. It was only one push of many, many pushes. After selling the mills, the full transformation into the number one paper-based consumer products company required thousands of additional pushes on the flywheel, big and small, accumulating one on top of another. It took years to gain enough momentum for the press to openly herald Kimberly Clark's shift from good to great. Forbes wrote, when Kimberly Clark decided to go head-to-head against P&G, this magazine predicted disaster. What a dumb idea. Well, as it turns out, it wasn't a dumb idea, Forbes continued. It was a smart idea. The amount of time between those two Forbes articles? 21 years. While working on the project, we made a habit of asking executives who visited our research laboratory what they would want to know from the research. One CEO asked, what did they call what they were doing? Did they have a name for it? How did they talk about it as they were going through it? Isn't that a great question? And we went back to look. The astounding answer? They didn't call it anything. They had no name for their transformations. There was no launch event, no tagline, no programmatic feel whatsoever. Some executives said they weren't even aware that a major transformation was underway until they were well into it. It was often more obvious to them after the fact than at the time. And it began to dawn on us. There was no miracle moment. Although it may have looked like a single-stroke breakthrough to those peering in from the outside, it was anything but that to people experiencing the transformation from within. Rather, it was a quiet, deliberate process of figuring out what needed to be done to create the best future results, and then simply taking those steps, one after another, turn by turn of the flywheel. After pushing on that flywheel in a consistent direction over an extended period, they'd inevitably hit breakthrough. Just for fun, let me share with you some of the direct quotes from executives at the Good to Great companies. It wasn't a blinding flash or sudden revelation from above. There was no one magical event, no one turning point. It was a combination of things. And another, it wasn't a flash from the blue. We had all been watching experimental superstores develop, and we were pretty well persuaded that the industry would go that way. The major thing Lyle did was to say we we're going to change beginning now on a very deliberate basis. Or this one. We did not make a decision that this was what we stood for at any specific moment. It evolved through many agonizing arguments and fights. I'm not sure that we exactly knew what we were fighting for until we looked back and said that we were fighting to establish who we were going to be. Another said, There was no seminal meeting or epiphany moment, no one big bright light that came on like a light bulb. Or this one, It wasn't a single switch that was thrown at one time. Little by little, the themes became more apparent and stronger. When Carl became CEO, there wasn't any great wrenching. Dick led one stage of the evolution, and Carl the next, and it just proceeded smoothly 
rather than an abrupt shift. When I teach this point, I sometimes use an example from outside my research that perfectly illustrates the idea, the UCLA Bruins basketball dynasty of the 1960s and the early 1970s. Basketball fans know that the Bruins won 10 NC2A championships in 12 years, at one point assembling a 61-game winning streak under legendary coach John Wooden. But if you're a basketball fan, or even not, do you know how many years Wooden coached the Bruins before the first NC2A championship? Not one, not three, not five, not even ten. Try 15. From 1948 to 1963, Wooden worked in relative obscurity before winning his first championship in 1964. Year by year, Coach Wooden built the underlying foundations, developing a recruiting system, implementing a consistent philosophy, and refining the full-court press style of play. No one paid too much attention to the quiet, soft-spoken coach and his team until, wham, they hit breakthrough and systematically crushed every serious competitor for more than a decade. Like the Wooden Dynasty, lasting transformations from good to great follow a general pattern of build-up followed by breakthrough. In some cases, the build-up to breakthrough stage takes a long time. In other cases, a much shorter time. But no matter how short or long it took, every good-to-great transformation followed the same basic pattern, accumulating momentum turn by turn of the flywheel until build-up transformed into breakthrough. It's important to grasp that following the build-up breakthrough flywheel model is not just a luxury of circumstance. People who say, hey, but we've got constraints that prevent us from taking this longer-term approach, should keep in mind that the good-to-great companies followed this model no matter how dire the short-term circumstances. Deregulation in the case of Wells Fargo, looming bankruptcy in the cases of Nucor and Circuit City, takeover threats in the cases of Gillette and Kroger, or million-dollar-a-day losses in the case of Fannie Mae. Which brings me to one of my pet peeves. This also applies to managing the short-term pressures of Wall Street. I just don't agree, said David Maxwell of Fannie Mae, with those who say you can't build an enduring great company because Wall Street won't let you. We communicated with the analysts to educate them on what we were doing and where we were going. At first, a lot of people didn't buy into that. You just have to accept that. But once we got through the darkest days, we responded by doing better every single year. After a few years, because of our actual results, we became a hot stock and never looked back. And a hot stock it was. During Maxwell's first two years, the stock lagged the market, but then it took off. From the end of 1984 to the year 2000, one dollar invested in Fannie Mae multiplied 64 times, beating the market, including the wildly inflated NASDAQ of the late 1990s, by nearly six times. The good to great companies were subject to the same short-term pressures from Wall Street as the comparison companies. Yet unlike the comparison companies, they had the patience and the discipline to follow the build-up breakthrough flywheel model despite these pressures. Folks, that's a lot of what Level 5 is all about. You have the discipline to follow the build-up breakthrough flywheel model despite those pressures. And in the end, they attained extraordinary results by Wall Street's own measure of success. 
There is no inconsistency whatsoever between building a great company by this model and living with the realities of Wall Street. We learned that the key is to harness the flywheel to manage these short-term pressures. One particularly elegant method for doing so came from Abbott Laboratories, using a mechanism it called the Blue Plant. Each year, Abbott would tell Wall Street analysts that it expected to grow earnings a specified amount, say 15%. At the same time, it would set an internal goal of a much higher growth rate, say 25% or maybe even 30%. Meanwhile, it kept a rank-ordered list of proposed entrepreneurial projects that had not yet been funded, and they called these the blue plants. Toward the end of the year, Abbott would pick a number that exceeded analyst expectations, but that fell short of its actual growth. It would then take the difference between the the make-the-analyst-happy growth and the actual growth, which was much higher, and channel those funds into the blue plant. It was a brilliant mechanism for managing short-term pressures while systematically investing in the future. Like Fannie Mae and Abbott, all the good-to-great companies effectively managed Wall Street during their build-up breakthrough years, and they saw no contradiction between the two. They simply focused on accumulating results, often practicing the time-honored discipline of under-promising and over-delivering. And as the results began to accumulate, as the flywheel built momentum, the investing community came along with great enthusiasm. The good to great companies understood a simple truth. Tremendous power exists in the fact of continued improvement and the delivery of results. Point to tangible accomplishments, however incremental at first, and show how these steps fit into the context of an overall concept that will work. And when you do this in such a way that people see and feel the buildup of momentum, they will line up with enthusiasm. We came to call this the flywheel effect and it applies not only to outside investors, but also to inside people. Let me share a story from the research. At a pivotal point in the study, members of the team nearly revolted. Throwing their interview notes on the table, they demanded, do we have to keep asking that stupid question? My response, yes. And second, what stupid question? Well, that one about commitment, alignment, and how they managed change. That's not a stupid question, I replied. It's one of the most important. Well, said one of the team members, a lot of the executives who made the transition, they think it's a stupid question. Some don't even understand the question. Yes, we do need to keep asking it. We need to be consistent across the interviews. And besides, it's even more interesting that they don't understand the question. Keep probing. We've got to understand how they overcame resistance to change and got people lined up. I have to be honest here. I fully expected to find that getting everyone lined up, creating alignment, to use the jargon, would be one of the top challenges faced by executives working to turn good into great. After all, nearly every executive who'd visited the laboratory had asked this question in one form or another. How do we get the boat turned? 
How do we get people committed to the new vision? How do we motivate people to line up? How do we get people to embrace change? Wrong questions. To my great surprise, we did not find the question of alignment to be a key challenge faced by the good to great leaders. Clearly, the good to great companies did get incredible alignment and commitment. They artfully managed change. But they never really spent much time thinking about it. It was transparent to them. And it taught us a big lesson. We learned that under the right conditions, the problems of commitment, alignment, motivation, and change just melt away. They largely take care of themselves. Think about Kroger. How do you get a company of over 50,000 people, checkers and baggers and shelf stockers and produce washers and so forth, to embrace a radical new strategy that would eventually change virtually every aspect of how the company builds and runs grocery stores? The answer? You don't. Not in one big program, or event anyway. Jim Herring, the Level 5 who initiated the transformation of Kroger, told us that he avoided any attempts at hoopla and motivation. Instead, he and his team began turning the flywheel, creating tangible evidence that their plans made sense. We presented what we were doing in such a way that people saw our accomplishments, said Herring. We tried to bring our plans to successful conclusion step by step so that the mass of people would gain confidence from the successes, not just the words. Herring understood that the way to get people lined up behind a bold new vision is to turn the flywheel consistent with that vision from two turns to four, then four to eight, then eight to 16, and then to say, see what we're doing and how well it is working? Well, extrapolate from there, and that's where we're going. The good to great companies tended not to publicly proclaim big goals at the outset. Rather, they began to spin the flywheel, understanding to action, step after step, turn after turn. After the flywheel built up momentum, they'd look up and say, hey, if we just keep pushing on this thing, there's no reason we can't accomplish X. When you let the flywheel do the talking, you don't need to fervently communicate your goals. People can just extrapolate from the momentum of the flywheel for themselves. Hey, if we just keep doing this, look at where we can go. As people decide among themselves to turn the fact of potential into the fact of results, the goal almost sets itself. Stop and think about it for a minute. What do the right people want more than almost anything else? They want to be part of a winning team. They want to contribute to producing visible, tangible results. They want to feel the excitement of being involved in something that just flat out works. When the right people see a simple plan born of confronting the brutal fact, a plan developed from understanding, not bravado, they are likely to say, that'll work, count me in. When they see the monolithic unity of the executive team behind the simple plan and the selfless, dedicated qualities of Level 5 leadership, they'll drop their cynicism. When people begin to feel the magic of momentum, when they begin to see tangible results, when they can feel the flywheel beginning to build speed, turn, turn, faster, faster, two to four to eight to 16 to 32 to 64 to 128 to 100,000 and a million, that's when the bulk of people line up and throw their shoulders against the wheel and push. We found a very different pattern in the comparison companies, which by now shouldn't surprise you. Instead of a quiet, deliberate process of figuring out what needed to be done, 
and then simply doing it, the comparison companies frequently launched new programs, often with great fanfare and hoopla aimed at motivating the troops, only to see the programs fail to produce sustained results. They sought the single defining action, the grand program, the one killer innovation, the miracle moment that would allow them to skip the arduous build-up stage and jump right to breakthrough. They would push the flywheel in one direction, then stop, change course, and throw it in a new direction. And then they would stop, change course, and throw it yet again in another direction. After years of lurching back and forth, the comparison companies failed to build sustained momentum and fell instead into what we came to call the doom loop. Just look at what happened to Warner Lambert, the direct comparison company to Gillette. In 1979, Warner Lambert told Businessweek that it aimed to be a leading consumer products company. Just one year later, in 1980, it did an abrupt about-face and turned its sights on healthcare, saying, Our flat-out aim is to go after Merck, Lilly, SmithKline, everybody and his brother. In 1981, yet only a year later, after the shift to healthcare, the company reversed course yet again and returned to diversification and consumer goods. Six years later, in 1987, Warner Lambert did another U-turn away from consumer goods to try once again to be like Merck. At the same time, the company spent three times as much on consumer advertising as on R&D, a somewhat puzzling strategy for a company trying to beat Merck. Then, in the early 1990s, reacting to Clinton-era healthcare reform, the company threw itself into reverse yet again and re-embraced diversification and consumer brands. Back and forth, lurch and thrash, to and fro. Each new Warner-Lambert CEO brought his own new program and halted the momentum of his predecessor. Ward Hagen tried to create a breakthrough with an expensive acquisition in the hospital supply business in 1982. Three years later, his successor, Joe Williams, extracted Warner-Lambert from the hospital supply business and took a $550 million write-off. He tried to focus the company on beating Merck. But then his successor threw the company back to diversification in consumer goods. And so it went back and forth with each CEO trying to make a mark with his own program. From 1979 to 98, Warner-Lambert went through three major restructurings, one per CEO, hacking away 20,000 people in search of quick breakthrough results. Time and again, the company would attain a burst of results, then slacken, never attaining the sustained momentum of a build-up breakthrough flywheel. Stock returns flattened relative to the market, and Warner-Lambert disappeared as an independent company, swallowed up by Pfizer. The Warner-Lambert case is extreme, but we found some version of the doom loop in every comparison company. While the specific permutations of the doom loop varied from company to company, there are some highly prevalent patterns, two of which deserve particular note. The misguided use of acquisitions and the selection of leaders who undo the work of previous generations. First, acquisitions. Peter Drucker once observed that the drive for mergers and acquisitions comes less from sound reasoning and more from the fact that doing deals is a much more exciting way to spend your day than doing work. Indeed, the comparison companies would have well understood the popular bumper sticker from the 1980s. 
When the going gets tough, we go shopping. To understand the role of acquisitions in the process of going from good to great, we undertook a systematic, qualitative, and quantitative analysis of all acquisitions and divestitures in all the companies in our study, from 10 years before the transition date through 1998. While we noticed no particular pattern in the amount or scale of acquisitions, we did note a significant difference in the success rate of acquisitions in the good-to-great companies versus the comparisons. Why did the good-to-great companies have a substantially higher success rate with acquisitions, especially major acquisitions? The key to their success is that their big acquisitions took place after development of the hedgehog concept and after the flywheel had built significant momentum. They used acquisitions as an accelerator of flywheel momentum, not a creator of it. Not surprisingly, the comparison companies frequently tried to jump right to breakthrough via an acquisition or merger, and it never worked. Often with their core business under siege, the comparison companies would dive into a big acquisition as a way to increase growth, diversify away their troubles, or make a CEO look good. Yet they never addressed the fundamental question. What can we do better than any other company in the world that fits our economic denominator and that we have passion for? They never learned the simple truth that while you can buy your way to growth, you absolutely cannot buy your way to greatness. Two big mediocrities joined together never make one great company. The second key doom loop pattern is that of new leaders who step in stop an already spinning flywheel, and throw it in an entirely new direction. Consider Harris Corporation, an unsustained comparison, which applied many of the good-to-great concepts in the early 1960s and began a classic build-up process that in fact did lead to breakthrough results. It looked like a promising candidate for a good-to-great transformation hitting breakthrough in 1975. Sadly, then the flywheel came to a grinding halt. In 1978, Joseph Boyd became chief executive. Boyd had previously been with Radiation Inc., a corporation acquired by Harris years earlier. His first key decision as CEO was to move the company headquarters from Cleveland to Melbourne, Florida, which just happened to be Radiation's hometown and the location of Boyd's house and his 47-foot powerboat, The Lazy Rascal. In 1983, Boyd threw a giant wrench into the flywheel by divesting the printing business. At the time, Harris was the number one producer of printing equipment in the world. The printing business was one of the most profitable parts of the company, generating nearly a third of total operating profits. And what did Boyd do with the proceeds? He threw the company headlong into the office automation business. But could Harris become the best in the world at office automation? Not likely. Horrendous software development problems delayed introduction of Harris's first workstation as the company stumbled into the battlefield to confront IBM, DEC, and Wang. Then, in an attempt to jump right to a new breakthrough, Harris spent a third of its entire corporate net worth to buy Lanier Business Products, a company in the low-end word processing business. Computer World magazine wrote, Boyd targeted the automated office as a key. Unfortunately for Harris, the company had everything but an office product. The attempt to design and market a word processing system met with a dismal failure. Out of tune with the market, and it had to be scrapped. 
the flywheel which had been spinning with great momentum after previous CEOs Divley and Tullis came detached from the axle, wobbled into the air, and then crashed to a grinding halt. From the end of 1973 to the end of 1978, Harris beat the market by more than five times. But from the end of 1978 to the end of 1983, Harris fell 39% behind the market, and by 1988, it had fallen over 70% behind. The doom loop replaced the flywheel. In a sense, the flywheel is a wraparound idea of the entire good-to-great study. When I look over the good-to-great transformations, the one word that keeps coming to mind is consistency. Another word offered to me by physics professor R.J. Peterson is coherence. What is one plus one, he asked, then pausing for effect. Four. In physics, we have been talking about the idea of coherence, the magnifying effect of one factor upon another. In reading about the flywheel, I couldn't help but think of the principle of coherence. However you phrase it, the basic idea is the same. Each piece of the system reinforces the other parts of the system to form an integrated whole that is much more powerful than the sum of the parts. It is only through consistency over time, through multiple generations, that you get maximum results. In a sense, everything in good to great is an exploration and description of the pieces of the build-up to breakthrough flywheel pattern. In standing back to survey the overall framework, we see that every factor works together to create this pattern, and each component produces a push on the flywheel. If you diligently and successfully apply each concept in the framework, and you continue to push in a consistent direction on the flywheel, accumulating momentum step by step and turn by turn, you will eventually reach breakthrough. It might not happen today, or tomorrow, or next week. It might not even happen next year. But it will happen. And when it does, you will face an entirely new set of challenges. How to accelerate momentum in response to ever-rising expectations and how to ensure that the flywheel continues to turn long into the future. In short, your challenge will no longer be how to go from good to great, but how to go from great to enduring great, from good to great to built to last. Chapter 9. From Good to Great to Built to Last When we began the Good to Great Research Project, we confronted a dilemma. How should we think about the ideas in Built to Last while doing the Good to Great Research? Briefly, Built to Last was based on a six-year research project conducted at Stanford Business School in the early 1990s. It answered the question, what does it take to start and build an enduring great company from the ground up? My research mentor and co-author on that book, Jerry I. Porras, and I studied 18 enduring great companies, institutions that stood the test of time, tracing their founding in some cases back to the 1800s, while becoming the iconic great companies of the late 20th century. Similar to this work, we used direct comparison companies for 18 paired comparisons. In short, we sought to identify the essential distinctions between great companies and good companies as they endure over decades, perhaps even centuries. When I had the first summer research team assembled for the Good to Great project, I asked, what should be the role of Built to Last in doing this study? 
I don't think it should play any role, said Brian Bagley. I didn't join this research team to do a derivative piece of work. Neither did I, added Allison Sinclair. I'm excited about a new project and a new question. It wouldn't be very fulfilling to just fill in the pieces of your other book. But wait a minute, I pushed back. We spent six years on the previous study. It might be helpful to build on our previous work. But then Paul Weissman jumped in. I seem to recall that you got the idea for this study when a McKinsey partner said that Built to Last didn't answer the question of how to change a good company into a great one. What if the answers are different? I'm sure it will be no surprise to you that we debated for many weeks, back and forth, to and fro. But then Stephanie Judd weighed in with an argument that swayed me. I love the ideas in Built to Last, and that's what worries me, she said. I'm afraid that if we start with BTL, which is our shorthand for Built to Last, as the frame of reference, we'll just go around in circles, proving our own biases. It became clear that there would be substantially less risk in starting from scratch, setting out to discover what we would, whether it matched BTL or not. Early in the research, then, we made a very important decision. We decided to conduct the research for good to great as if built to last didn't exist. This was the only way to clearly see the factors in transforming a good company into a great one with minimal bias from our previous work. We could then return later and ask, how, if at all, do the two studies relate? Now, five years later, with the project complete, we can stand back and look at the two works in the context of each other. And looking across the two studies, I offer the following four conclusions. One, when I consider the enduring great companies from built to last, I now see substantial evidence that their early leaders followed the good to great framework. The only real difference is that they did so as entrepreneurs in small or early stage companies trying to get off the ground rather than as CEOs trying to transform established companies from good to great. Two, in an ironic twist, I now see good to great not as a sequel to Built to Last, but as a prequel. What you do is you apply the findings in good to great to create sustained great results, as either a startup or as an established organization. And then you apply the findings in Built to Last to go from great results to an enduring great company. Three. To make the shift from sustained great results to an enduring great company of iconic stature, you need to apply the central concept from built to last. Discover your core values and purpose beyond just making money, or what we came to call a core ideology, and combine this with the dynamic of preserve the core, stimulate progress. And four, a tremendous resonance exists between the two studies. The ideas from each enrich and inform the ideas of the other. In particular, good to great answers a fundamental question, raised but not answered and built to last. What is the difference between a good BHAG and a bad BHAG? BHAG stands for Big, Hairy, Audacious Goal. When I look back at the built to last study, it appears that the enduring great companies did in fact go through a process of build up to breakthrough following the good-to-great framework during their formative years. Take, for example, the evolution of Walmart. Most people think that Sam Walton, just Sam Walton, just exploded onto the scene with his visionary idea for rural discount retailing, hitting breakthrough almost as a startup company. But nothing could be further from the truth. 
Sam Walton began in 1945 with a single dime store. He didn't open his second store until seven years later. He built incrementally, step-by-step, turn-by-turn of the flywheel, until the hedgehog concept of large discount marts popped out as a natural evolutionary step in the mid-1960s. It took Sam Walton a quarter of a century to grow from that single dime store to a chain of 38 Walmarts. But then, bang, breakthrough, flywheel turning, huge momentum. From 1970 to 2000, Walmart hit breakthrough and exploded to over 3,000 stores with over 150 billion, yes, billion with a B, dollars in annual revenues. Just like the story of the chicken jumping out of the egg that we discussed in the flywheel chapter, Walmart had been incubating for decades before the egg cracked open. As Sam Walton himself wrote, somehow over the years, people have gotten the impression that Walmart was just this great idea that turned into an overnight success. But it was an outgrowth of everything we'd been doing since 1945. And like most overnight successes, it was about 20 years in the making. If there ever was a classic case of buildup leading to a hedgehog concept, followed by breakthrough momentum in the flywheel, Walmart is clearly it. The only difference between Sam Walton and the good-to-great CEOs is that Sam Walton followed the model as an entrepreneur building a great company from the ground up, rather than as a CEO transforming an established company from good to great. But it's the same basic idea, build-up, breakthrough, flywheel. Another company from the Built to Last study Hewlett-Packard provides an excellent example of the good-to-great ideas at work in their formative stages. For instance, Bill Hewlett and David Packard's entire founding concept for HP was not what, but who. Back to the principle of first who, then what. They started with each other. They'd been best friends in graduate school and simply wanted to build a company together that would attract other people with similar values and standards. The founding minutes of their first meeting on August 23, 1937, begin by stating that they would design, manufacture, and sell products in the electrical engineering fields very broadly defined. But in one of the most wonderful corporate documents I've ever looked at, those same founding minutes go on to say, the question of what to manufacture was postponed. One wonders how they would have done raising venture capital. Hewlett and Packard stumbled around for months trying to come up with something, anything, that would get the company out of the garage. They considered yacht transmitters, air conditioning control devices, medical devices, phonograph amplifiers, you name it. They built electronic bowling alley sensors, a clock drive for a telescope, an electronic shock jiggle machine to help overweight people lose weight. It didn't really matter what the company made in the very early days, as long as it made a technical contribution and would enable Hewlett and Packard to build a company together and with other like-minded people. It was the ultimate first who, then what startup. Hewlett and Packard were themselves consummate level five leaders, first as entrepreneurs and later as company builders. Years after HP had established itself as one of the most important technology companies in the world, Hewlett maintained a remarkable personal humility. In 1972, HP Vice President Barney Oliver described Hewlett's humility. At an executive council meeting, Hewlett remarked, look, we've grown because the industry grew. 
writes Barney Oliver in his own reminiscences. We were lucky enough to be sitting on the nose when the rocket took off. We don't deserve a damn bit of credit. Oliver continues, after a moment's silence, while everyone digested this humbling comment, Packard said, well, Bill, at least we didn't louse it up completely. And speaking of David Packard, I had the opportunity to meet him shortly before his death. Despite being one of Silicon Valley's first self-made billionaires, he lived in the same small house that he and his wife built for themselves in 1957, overlooking a simple orchard. The tiny kitchen, with its dated linoleum and the simply furnished living room, bespoke a man who needed no material symbols to proclaim, I'm a billionaire, I'm important, I'm successful. His idea of a good time, said Bill Terry, who worked with Packard for 36 years, was to get some of his friends together to string some barbed wire. Packard bequeathed his $5.6 billion estate to a charitable foundation. And upon his death, his family created a eulogy pamphlet with a photo of him sitting on a tractor in farming clothes. The caption made no reference to his stature as one of the great industrialists of the 20th century. It simply read, David Packard, 1912 to 1996, rancher, etc. Level 5, indeed. But of course, Built to Last is not just good to great in different clothes. There are some key ideas that came from Built to Last. In particular, we learned in Built to Last that there is a vital extra dimension that elevates an enterprise to the elite status of an enduring great company. That extra dimension is a guiding philosophy, or what we came to call a core ideology, which consists of core values and a core purpose, a reason for being beyond just making money. These resemble the principles in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. They're never perfectly followed, but always present as an inspiring standard and an answer to the question of why it is important that we exist. Enduring great companies don't exist merely to deliver returns to shareholders. Indeed, in a truly great company, profits and cash flow become like blood and water to a healthy body. They are absolutely essential for life, but they are not the very point of life. For example, Merck has consistently outperformed the market as a highly profitable company, growing to nearly $6 billion in profits and beating the market by over 10 times from 1946 to 2000. Yet despite its remarkable financial performance, Merck does not view its ultimate reason for being as making money. In 1950, George Merck II, son of the founder, set forth the company's philosophy. We try to remember that medicine is for the patient, he said. It is not for the profits. The profits follow. And if we have remembered that, they have never failed to appear. The better we have remembered it, the larger they have been. An important caveat to the concept of core values is that there are no specific right core values for becoming an enduring great company. No matter what core value you propose, I can show you an enduring great company that does not have that specific core value. A company need not have passion for its customers. Sony didn't. It was somewhere between indifference and disdain for its customers. Or respect for the individual. Disney didn't. It tends to systematically pulverize individuality out of everybody that works there. 
or quality, which Walmart didn't, or social responsibility, which Ford didn't. It doesn't need to have any one of these specific core values to become great. This was one of the most paradoxical findings from Built to Last. On the one hand, core values are absolutely essential for enduring greatness. But, on the other hand, it doesn't seem to matter what those core values are. Some companies are passionate about their customers, as IBM is, but others, like Sony, are not. And Sony is passionate about innovation, but Ford is not. The point is not what core values you have, but that you have core values at all. That you know what they are, that you build them explicitly into the organization, and that you preserve them over time. This notion of preserving your core ideology is a central feature of enduring great companies. The obvious question is, how do you preserve the core and yet adapt to a changing world? The answer, you have to embrace the key concept of preserve the core, stimulate progress. Enduring great companies preserve their core values and purpose, yet their business strategies and their operating practices endlessly adapt to a changing world. This is the magical combination. Let me illustrate with the story of Walt Disney. In 1923, an energetic 21-year-old animator moved from Kansas City to Los Angeles and tried to get a job in the movie business. No film company would hire him, so he used his meager savings to rent a camera, set up a studio in his uncle's garage, and began making animated cartoons. This, of course, was Walt himself. In 1934, Mr. Disney took the bold step, never before taken, to create successful, full-length animated feature films, including such classics as Snow White, Pinocchio, Fantasia, and Bambi. In the 1950s, Disney moved into television with the Mickey Mouse Club. Also in the 1950s, Walt Disney paid a fateful visit to a number of amusement parks and came away disgusted, calling them dirty, phony places run by tough-looking people. He decided that Disney could build something much better, perhaps even the best in the world, and the company launched a whole new business in theme parks, first with Disneyland and later with Walt Disney World and Epcot Center. Over time, Disney theme parks have become a cornerstone experience for families from all over the world. Throughout all these dramatic changes, from cartoons to full-length feature animation, from the Mickey Mouse Club to Disney World, the company held firmly to a consistent set of core values that included a passionate belief in creative imagination, a fanatic attention to detail, abhorrence of cynicism, and preservation of the Disney magic. Mr. Disney also instilled a remarkable constancy of purpose that permeated every new Disney venture. We're almost to the end of our time together, and until this point, I've only dealt with the question of how to create great results and enduring great companies. But I've not addressed the question of why greatness. And in our closing minutes, I'd like to offer a few thoughts on this question. During a break at a seminar that I gave to a group of my ex-students from Stanford, one came up to me and said, maybe I'm just not ambitious, or maybe ambitious enough, but I really don't want to build a huge company. Is there anything wrong with that? Not at all, I replied. Greatness doesn't depend on size. I then told him about Sina Cementobe, who runs the building where I have my research laboratory. Sina has created a truly great institution. It's an old 1892 red brick school building that has been renovated into the most extraordinary space, decorated and maintained 
with tremendous attention to detail, in fact, bordering on perfection. By one definition of results, attracting the most interesting people in Boulder, setting a standard that other local buildings measure themselves against, and generating the highest profit per foot of space, his small enterprise is a truly great institution in my hometown. Cementobe has never defined greatness by size, and there is no reason for him to. So my student paused for a moment, then said, Okay, I accept that I don't need to build a big company in order to have a great company. But even so, why should I try to build a great company? What if I just want to be successful? Now that question brought me up short. This was not a lazy person asking me. He had started his own business as a young man, put himself through law school, and after his graduate school became a driven entrepreneur. He has remarkable energy, an intense and infectious enthusiasm. Of all the students I've known over the years, he is one that I have little doubt will be enormously successful. And yet he questions the whole idea of trying to build something great and lasting. To him, and to everyone else, I can offer two answers. First, I believe that it is no harder to build something great than to build something good. Let me say that again. I believe that it is no harder to build something great than to build something good. It might be statistically more rare to reach greatness, but it does not require more suffering than perpetuating mediocrity. Indeed, if some of the comparison companies... Before we close, allow me to briefly summarize the key ideas in Good to Great to help ingrain them in your memory. Think of transformation as a process of buildup followed by breakthrough, broken into three broad stages, disciplined people, disciplined thought, and disciplined action. Within each of these three stages, there are two key components. In the first stage, disciplined people, we have level five leadership, those humble heroes who have the will to do whatever it takes to create something great. We also have the concept of first who, then what? Get the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus, and the right people in the right seats. In the second stage, disciplined thought, we have the need to confront the brutal facts, yet never lose faith in the ability to prevail, otherwise known as the Stockdale Paradox. Also in disciplined thought, we have the crucial hedgehog concept, gained by deep understanding of three intersecting circles. By now, you probably know them by heart what you can be the best in the world at, what economic denominator best drives your economic engine, and what you are deeply passionate about. In the third stage, disciplined action, we have the culture of discipline. Remember to rinse your cottage cheese and to begin your stop doing list. Also remember the discipline to stay focused on the intersection of the three circles of your hedgehog concept. We also have the role of technology accelerators, which can help transform good to great and to help it gain its second wind. Finally, wrapping around all these ideas is the concept of the flywheel, accumulating momentum, turn upon turn, which captures the gestalt of the entire process of going from good to great. Then once you've gone from good to great, the next step is to make the leap from great to enduring great by applying the key ideas from built to last principally the idea of preserve your core ideology while stimulating change and progress, and setting BHAGs that fall in the middle of your three circles. These few principles should help you on your journey from good to great, 
and I extend to you my very best wishes for your success.